1896, the B Company of the 7th Cavalry was out in the deserts of southeastern Arizona. The company was then temporarily stationed at Fort Grant, while the regiment itself seems to have been stationed at Fort Bayard in New Mexico. And among those slogging along in the desert heat that year was a young enlisted soldier by the name of Edgar Rice Burroughs. Now, I know that some of you just nodded your head at the mention of that name, but for those of you who don't recognize it, I'll let you in on the secret. Burroughs would not serve in the military long, as a heart condition made him ineligible to serve, and he would be out less than two years from enlisting. In the decades to come, however, he would turn to pulp fiction to make some money, eventually creating the character of John Carter. And even if you don't know his John Carter books, I guarantee you've heard of the character he introduced in 1912, Tarzan. This incredibly short time Burroughs spent in Arizona is an historical footnote, something that only gets mentioned by podcasters like yours truly and obscure Wikipedia articles. But I highlight it because Burroughs' company was out in the deserts in 1896 for a very specific reason. He was hunting down another historical footnote known as the Apache Kid. History is full of these tiny little details that can, and often are, glossed over while telling a more sweeping story. But today, we start to close out the 1800s by highlighting some of these footnotes that will make our understanding of 19th century Arizona just a little more complete. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you are listening to AZ. The History of Arizona. Episode 144, The Hermit of the Superstitions. Welcome back, everyone. I hope all my listeners who live in the States had a lovely 4th of July, and all my international listeners had a good two weeks, I guess. I had a very pleasant break myself and was even able to get just a bit ahead on the podcast, which is a very rare accomplishment for me. But we are back now, so let's talk some history. What I want to do today is cover a few miscellaneous items that for one reason or another did not make it into previous episodes, or I have somehow otherwise failed to touch on them yet. In our first case, it was a memory lapse on my part. I was listening to some of the older episodes, and I realized that some time ago I promised to talk about the founding of Flagstaff, but just never followed up on that. So, before we go any further, we need to leap back a bit to cover the beginning of what could arguably be called Northern Arizona's most important community. Of course, the site of Flagstaff has been used since time immemorial, but between roughly the 6th and 15th centuries A.D., a group of ancestral Puebloan Amerindians, dubbed the Sinagua people by scholars, occupied the area. This is the same culture that would build the incredibly inaccurately named Montezuma's Castle near Camp Verde and the ruins found at the Wuptopki National Monument. Both sites are definitely worth a visit, by the way. These people thrived in the area, especially after the eruption of what we now call Sunset Crater sometime between 1064 and 1085 AD, which created incredibly rich volcanic soils. 
It still blows my mind that this more than 1,100-foot cinder cone didn't exist before a millennia ago, and that human beings literally watched it happen. They also put corn into the rapidly cooling lava, and those impressions remain until this day. So apparently, souvenirs have always been a thing. The Sanagua people were eventually replaced by the Yavapai in the 15th century, and it's even possible that the former were driven off by the latter. What we do know is that the area around these San Francisco peaks remained an important site to many Amerindian cultures, including the Hopi, suggesting a connection with the Sanagua. The volcanic peaks north of Flagstaff, the highest in Arizona, were given their name of San Francisco by the Spanish, as various friars and others passed through over the centuries. The first Americans to see the area were the explorers, cartographers, and surveyors of the 1850s who were trying to make Jefferson Davis's vision of a southern railroad come true. And here I'm talking about Lorenzo Sitgreaves and Emil W. Whipple, both of whom we talked about in episode 25. A few years later, Edward Fitzgerald Beale and his Camel Corps would pass by the area while trying to break their wagon route from Fort Defiance to the Colorado River, and you can re-listen to that tale by going back to episode 31. But settlement in Flagstaff itself would not come for a couple more decades, and only really happened because of a bald-faced lie. In 1876, a man named Samuel Woodworth Cousins published a book called The Marvelous Country, and then went on a speaking tour to promote it. The book was ostensibly a first-hand account of Cousins' time in the West, and he positively gushed over the untapped keg of resources that was northern Arizona. The only problem was the book made a lot of claims that weren't actually true, and it later came to light that Cousins had never actually visited northern Arizona for himself. But his wild, vivid tales sparked something in a group of Bostonians who decided that they definitely needed to live in Cousins' paradise. They originally intended to settle along the Little Colorado River near modern-day Winslow, but when they arrived, they found that Mormon colonists had beaten them to the punch. Pushing westward, they eventually came to the area south of the San Francisco Peaks, and on July 4, 1876, they stripped a tall pine tree of its bark and raised an American flag in honor of the day. Or at least that's according to most versions of the story you'll read. There are various flag-raising stories attributed to several different groups, but the Boston Party story seems to be the most prevalent. Though I will note that state historian Marshall Trimble says this group is actually the second group from Boston to make this trek, so you'll also see them occasionally referred to as the Second Boston Party. In any case, this party from Boston either tried to make a go at farming in the area and failed, or already had it in their heads to go to California because either way, they didn't stick around long. No matter which version of the story you go with, this improvised flagpole became something of an icon, and eventually, despite going through a few other nicknames, Flagstaff was born. The first permanent Anglo-American settler was Thomas Forsyth McMillan, a Tennessean by birth who was also the nephew-in-law of President James K. Polk, and who had lived in Australia for some time raising sheep. He homesteaded near Antelope Springs, which was one of two water sources in the area. The other was LaRue Springs, which was named after the guide Anton LaRue, who helped guide both the Mormon Battalion and Sitgreaves' expedition. 
Macmillan would build a house there in 1886, but then upgraded it with porches, better siding, and other features in 1888 to appease his recently married wife, who was not a fan of the rough hue log cabin-like building that had originally been there. And if you are ever so inclined, make sure to drop by the Museum of Northern Arizona off US-180, which does have a restored Macmillan homestead as part of its buildings. What really kicked Flagstaff off, however, was the arrival of the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad in the early 1880s. This led to a cattle boom, and this is when John W. Young started up the Mormon Cattle Company, later called the A-1, which we talked about in episode 119. And this is when the Daggs brothers moved in with their sheep empire. Again, episode 119. Finally, there were the diversified Babbitt brothers, George, Charles, Edward, William, and David, whom we also touched on in episode 119. But Flagstaff, sitting as it does along the largest belt of ponderosa pine trees in the world, could not go long without becoming a timber destination as well. And here we should talk about Timothy and Michael Riordan, who came to the area in 1886, though I can't seem to find that much on their early life, including where they moved from. Seriously, all the resources I have around me and the easily searchable internet, everything just begins after the Riordans arrived in Flagstaff. That's not right, so if anyone has additional information about their early lives, definitely let me know. Once in town, though, the brothers formed the Arizona Lumber and Timber Company, becoming some of the leading citizens of this burgeoning new community. And the brothers would marry a pair of sisters and would build the eponymous Riordan Mansion, which was actually two separate homes which were connected by a common area known as the Billiard Room. And this mansion, which they called Kinlinchi, a Navajo term for rent house, is a state park today. So yet another thing to tick off your list next time you are in Flagstaff. Finally, I'll just mention here that in 1893, a rich, eccentric astronomer named Percival Lowell arrived and started building his observatory on top of the prominence that is known as Mars Hill. This is something we'll definitely cover later, but I just wanted to sneak in a mention of Lowell and his observatory right now. When Coconino County was formed in 1891, Flagstaff beat out other communities to become the county seat. The odd thing about this is that Flagstaff wouldn't actually incorporate as a city until 1894. Still, the city was on the rise, and the rest, as they say, is history. Though Trimble does have one more amusing anecdote that he passes along. According to him, in 1911, movie producers Jesse Lasky and Cecil B. DeMille were heading west after moving their production company out of New York. Traveling by train, they found this idyllic community nestled at the foot of some truly breathtaking mountains. Dazzled by the prospect of shooting outdoor movies in such a location, they started to unpack their gear. Until a sudden winter storm blew in. The pair then packed up their gear, caught the next westbound train, and didn't stop until they reached Southern California. So, though it would play host to a number of westerns over the years, Flagstaff had come this close to being the original Hollywood. Okay, our next subject was actually a suggestion from a listener who messaged me on Facebook asking whether I was going to talk about Elisha Rivas. 
And my original plan was to fold Elisha Rivas into the episodes discussing the Lost Dutchman Mine and the Superstition Mountains, but I couldn't find the best way to do that, so I had to set it aside until now. So first, let me apologize to that listener that they didn't get this when promised, but hey, better late than never. Meanwhile, the rest of you are asking yourself, who the heck is Elisha Rivas? I'll settle this one thing now. He has nothing to do with James Addison Rivas, though there is a chance they were distant relations of each other. Instead, Rivas gained notoriety as the Hermit of the Superstitions after he fled into the mountains to live a life of solitary farming. Born in Beardstown, Illinois in 1827, Rivas originally went into teaching after graduating from a teacher's college. Eventually, though, he, like everyone else of his time, packed up his belongings and moved to California, either to try his hand at teaching there or because he too had succumbed to gold fever. Even if his original intention was to teach, the gold fever got him in the end, and he would be one of the many trying to strike it rich by panning along the San Gabriel River for gold throughout the 1850s. In the early 1860s, he also briefly went to Arizona's Bradshaw Mountains to try his luck there, though he would call it quits in Arizona after only three years. Once back in California, he would get married and have two children, of which only one daughter survived. And he would move back to Arizona in 1869, though his family did not come with him. I've seen it written that either his wife had a heart condition that would not tolerate the arduous trip, or that she didn't want to be separated from her parents. Rivas traveled to La Paz with his uncle, Isham Rivas, who had just been appointed an assistant chief justice of the Territorial Supreme Court, but soon he went on to Wickenburg and finally Fort McDowell. In Arizona, he would find work selling, breaking, and packing horses and mules for the U.S. Army, and he may have served as a deputy U.S. marshal in the McDowell precinct, a job that was a bit of patronage from his uncle. However, news came from California letting him know that his wife had died, again likely from a heart condition. This news is the start of what catapulted Rivas to local fame, as to deal with his grief, he went into isolation in the Superstition Mountains. In 1878, he settled permanently into a valley on the eastern edge of the mountains, where the Sanagua people had lived and farmed centuries beforehand. He would spend the rest of his life alone in this valley, though he did grow vegetables that he would occasionally gather up and take into town to sell. And this is where he gained the title Hermit of the Superstitions, an image that he really leaned into. He never cut or combed his beard and hair, and Tom Colinborn tells us that he never bathed either, which made the occasional sighting of this wild man with matted hair on the streets of Phoenix quite the conversation starter. In 1894, the Arizona Daily Citizen reported that Rivas's small homestead consisted of around 15 acres of good land irrigated by a mountain spring, and that his vegetables were so good that he could basically name his own price at market. Every so often, he would be spotted riding into town on a burrow while leading a pack train of 8 to 15 animals packed with his vegetables. Stories abound about Rivas and his time holed up in his mountain getaway. One is that he was an excellent shot with a rifle, which was put to the test in 1878 when a group of 10 Apache descended on his homestead. He managed to take out three of this group when they made runs at his dugout, 
so the rest pulled back and decided to wait until this crazy old coot ran out of food and water. Meanwhile, inside his dugout, Rivas recalled stories of other men who had survived such encounters. And one school of thought out there was that the Apache would not attack someone they thought was insane. Rivas decided to try his hand at this tactic, so he stripped off all his clothes, grabbed two butcher's knives, and ran out of his dugout, screaming and rushing at the Apache camped out along his creek. The sight of this buck-naked, red-haired white guy running at them while screaming was enough to cause the Apache to scatter and never come back. Of course, Rivas wasn't actually crazy. He was just someone who wanted the world to leave him alone. Once, while in town, a photographer snapped a photo of him that eventually was enlarged and became part of Arizona's entry into the Columbian Exhibition in 1893. A woman saw this photograph and claimed that the man pictured, Rivas, was her long-lost brother. Suddenly, all sorts of romantic, dramatic stories about this hermit in the mountains were circulating. However, Rivas had never consented to be photographed and didn't want any notoriety. So when people started trying to follow up with him about these stories, he sent a message to the photographer. If Rivas ever saw this man in person, he would put a bullet through his brain. But I don't want you thinking that Rivas was only some caricature of a grizzled, lonesome miner. He had a temper, yes, but if someone accidentally stumbled upon his little valley, they were treated with all hospitality. And Rivas was an educated man, and his mountain getaway is said to have contained a decent little library of books. Colinborn also relates a story where Rivas was hunting a mother bear with her two cubs, but at one point the bear, already wounded, grabbed her cubs and pulled them close as if begging for mercy. And Rivas couldn't shoot such a pitiful creature considering it murder instead of hunting. There's also an incident where, while drinking at a saloon in Phoenix, he was introduced to a concert hall singer. And he politely refused to drink a glass of champagne with this woman because his sense of decorum said that he could drink with the guys, but never drink with a lady in a saloon. I will also add in here that during his sojourn in the superstitions, Rivas did have an encounter with none other than Jacob Waltz, the Deutschman himself, while he was taking his vegetables to market. According to Colinborn, Rivas told Waltz that he might find the bonanza he was looking for, but it would forever destroy the peace and beauty of the mountains. Something of a prophetic statement if you consider how often men have descended upon the superstitions looking for the lost gold mine. Rivas would finally meet his end in April 1896. A friend had stopped by his garden, where he learned the old man was heading into Mesa to buy seed potatoes. However, when this friend later learned that Rivas had not shown up either in town or at nearby ranches, he went looking and found the hermit's remains a few miles away from his homestead in what is today known as Grave Canyon. All that was left of Rivas after predation from wild animals was buried where the remains had been found. And I do want to stop here and address something of a conspiracy theory that you often find when talking about Rivas and the superstitions. That is, that Rivas had actually been beheaded, and this was part of a string of beheadings that happened in the superstitions, and included Adolf Ruth, who we talked about last time. However, from what I've read, it seems that the story of Rivas being beheaded is a later invention, and is passed around to make his death sound more mysterious than it actually is. 
In fact, the whole story of mysterious beheadings might be built on more of myth than reality, which is actually kind of disappointing for all of us who love a good mystery. Rivas was approaching 70 when he died after a stay of some three decades in the mountains. He is honored today as the namesake of Rivas Ranch, the popular backpacking destination that takes hikers up to his picturesque garden in The Superstitions. The last subject for today's episode is something I've gone back and forth on covering for some time. I originally put off covering it because it was a side thread to the whole Apache Wars, which is a pretty dense tapestry as it is. And as time went on, I thought I would just leave the whole thing in the dust because it really is its own little historical eddy. But then again, I love getting swept away in historical eddies. So once I conceived of this episode, I knew it was finally time to talk about why Edgar Rice Burroughs was in the desert in 1896. The Apache Kid. The Kid had been born into a group of the Aravipa Apache Band, probably around 1860. Author Paul Andrew Hutton says that the kid was born just a few years after Felix Ward, later Mickey Free, was bought by Eskimosin, the leader of the Aravipa whom we have dealt with before. His real name, according to most accounts, was Haski Bene Natal, which translated to brave and tall and will come to a mysterious end. There are other Apache names floating around out there, but I'm going to call him Kid, or The Kid, from here on out because that's what American soldiers called him as they couldn't pronounce his real name, much like myself. While still a boy or a young teenager, his group had either been captured by the U.S. Army or he personally had been captured by Quechins and was freed by Army soldiers. Either way, from a young age, he became sort of a mascot in Army camps where he learned horse wrangling, marksmanship, and to speak English. He also met and ingratiated himself with Chief of Scouts Al Sieber, and many writers are quick to say that Sieber almost considered this brave, loyal, skilled young man as something of an adopted son. I'm not sure we can go that far, but there is no doubt that Sieber trusted and relied on Kid. Starting in 1882, and possibly at the behest of Sieber, Kid joined the Apache Scouts and would serve on and off for the next five years. And he probably missed many of the grand set pieces of the Apache Wars, though he was at the Battle of Big Dry Wash in July 1882, the last major battle between the U.S. Army and Apache forces in Arizona. During his time as a scout, Kid would rise to the rank of first sergeant, showing the trust placed in him by the white soldiers. After Geronimo was finally captured and the Chiricahua were sent off to slowly die in Florida, Kidd and his fellow scouts went back to reservation life. He had married a daughter of Eskimosin, a rather attractive young woman that the soldiers all nicknamed Beauty. And things probably would have gone well for him if it wasn't for that old bane of Apache Army relations. Tiswin. On June 1st, 1887, just a few weeks after the Great Sonoran Earthquake from episode 134, by the way, a grand Tiswin drunk was happening, and Sieber dispatched Kid and some other scouts to stop it. However, at this Tiswin drunk was Kid's father, who'd gotten into a dispute with another man. This man's brother had been, years earlier, on the losing side of a love triangle with Kid's mother, and now, fueled by alcohol, 
he decided to take out his frustrations on his brother's victorious rival. So either Kid's father had been killed by this guy, or Kid's grandfather had been killed trying to break up a fight between Kid's father and this other guy. And the issue now became a conflict between Kid's duty as a trusted scout tasked with upholding reservation law and his duty as the oldest male child of a family, which according to Apache custom, gave him license to strike back. Except he wasn't going after the man that had actually killed his father or grandfather, but his brother named Rip, whose long-held jealousy and anger had started the whole thing. So Kid rode into Rip's camp and shot the man through the heart. This was all done while Al Sieber and Captain Franklin Pierce, the military Indian agent at San Carlos, were away, but when they returned, they immediately sent word to Kid and those with him that they needed to come in. This they did, and even turned over their weapons when ordered. Pierce called for them to be sent to the guardhouse, but suddenly gunfire erupted from the crowd of Apache onlookers that had gathered. Kid saw a chance to make a break for it, and reach for his weapons, but Sieber knocked them away before he had the chance. The chief of scouts would go for his own weapon, but was shot in the leg during the attempt, an injury that he would carry with him for the rest of his life. Kid and those with him fled from the reservation, which was a serious PR crisis for General Nelson A. Miles, who had actually moved his headquarters to Los Angeles following the deportation of Geronimo. However, after weeks of being chased by the army, Kidd agreed to come into San Carlos voluntarily if Miles would recall the cavalry. Kidd and four companions were tried by court-martial for desertion and mutiny and were found guilty. This being the 1800s, the punishment for such crimes was death, and Hutton writes that the four were set to be executed via firing squad. However, General Miles had sympathy for the entire situation and asked that the case be revisited. The sentence was then changed to the kid getting life in prison at Fort Leavenworth, but Miles intervened again, and so the kid received a 10-year sentence at Alcatraz, while his fellow prisoners got varying sentences. However, Kidd and his companions would only serve a fraction of this time, as a review by the Judge Advocate General's Office in Washington, D.C. found that the court-martial hadn't been a fair one. Specifically, it called out that none of the guilty men had actually fired a shot, and that they didn't fully understand the charges being leveled against them. So, in October 1888, after having been at the Rock for about six months, they were allowed to return home. However, things took another turn just a year later, when a Supreme Court decision on another case basically left Kidd and his comrades open to a trial in a civilian court. And we've talked before about what kind of luck an Apache would have in that kind of setting. In particular, Al Sieber, both angry over his injury and deeply hurt by Kidd's perceived betrayal, was a driving force and willing participant in this trial, with the charge being attempted murder on him. Hutton writes that Sieber would actually perjure himself during this trial, which started on October 29, 1888, and lasted only like a day or two, and during which he claimed that Kidd had in fact been the one that shot him, something that was backed up by other witnesses called by the prosecution. Truly, hell hath no fury like a chief of scouts scorned. 
Unsurprisingly, Kidd and his companions were found guilty and sentenced to seven years in the Yuma Territorial Prison. Kidd and other prisoners were put on a stagecoach and globe with plans to take them to Casa Grande and then put them on a train to Yuma. However, on November 9, 1888, just a couple days into this journey, the stage reached a steep grade and most of the prisoners, but not Kidd, were taken out to lighten the load. These other prisoners jumped on an opportunity, attacking and killing Gila County Sheriff Glenn Reynolds with his own rifle. They turned to take out an accompanying deputy, but found that the man had died already, apparently from a heart attack out of fright. The stage driver was shot in the neck, but apparently Kidd, whom the other prisoners had released by this point, kept them from landing the killing blow. And here, Kidd passes from history into legend. The manhunt organized to track him and the eight other escaped Apache down was one of the largest in the history of the Southwest. Al Sieber again was a man possessed, and he kept Eskimzin and Kidd's family under tight surveillance before just sending them to Alabama to join the Chiricahua exiles there. Soon, every murder or theft in the territory was blamed on Kidd and the others with him. Though he undoubtedly committed some of these, he couldn't have possibly committed everything he was accused of. In response, the Territory of Arizona put a $500 bounty on Kidd's head in 1889, something that was up to $5,000 in 1893. And I will note that the bill introduced into the Territorial Legislature to up the bounty came from Gila County Representative George W.P. Hunt, who would be the state of Arizona's first governor. Over the years, various Apache that had escaped with Kidd from that stage would be found and killed, but Kidd himself never would. Unlike Geronimo or Cochise, Kidd didn't seek to lead anyone. Instead, he preferred to be the lone wolf who would strike and take what he wanted. This included occasionally abducting women from the San Carlos Reservation and then sending them back once his uh, needs had been satisfied. In 1890, the leader of irregular Mexican troops claimed that he had fought Kidd and others in Sonora, though they had escaped. For evidence of this, he produced an ornate gold watch which had belonged to the deceased Sheriff Reynolds and that had been taken from a dead Apache. Mickey Free, who was tasked with finding Kidd, later claimed that he found the renegade's body in a cave. He even brought in a scalp that he claimed was Kidd's, though no one exactly believed him as the pair had been relatively close and the thought was he had brought in a random scalp to get Kidd off the hook. Another story is that Kidd had been shot and killed by a rancher in New Mexico, but this was never verified. Indeed, rumors persisted about Kidd up into the 1920s, with some saying that he was living in the Sierra Madres in Sonora and continuing to raid every now and again. Hutton even passes along a story where rancher John Slaughter, who I briefly mentioned back in episode 97, took in an Apache girl who was rumored to be the Kidd's daughter. In the end, it's doubtful that we'll ever know for certain the ultimate fate of the Apache Kid, or what he really did or did not do after escaping from that stagecoach. But, like all good legends, I'm not sure I actually want to. As it stands, it's what podcasters like I dream about. 
a great story. I'm going to leave things here for this week, but join me next week as I finally do something I've been threatening to do for years. Go on a vaguely self-indulgent dive into the history of Arizona's newspapers. Until then, I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.